Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I am the mischievous Mark Giannacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which do not count. I'm the available Alan Shurstel, and yet again, I refuse to engage in this annual count or not count discussion, but I am very happy to say that I am coming to you live today from a place I did not expect we would ever get to. Readers of Amazing Spider-Man, I am coming to you from inside the very heart of the fireworks factory. We finally got here. The book has finally arrived. (laughs) Well, on that note, we welcome you to the fireworks factory and to the amazing spider talk, the show where two fans uncover the strange, fun and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thank you for joining us for this review episode of the amazing spider talk. You want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future? Subscribe to The Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This is the perfect time to start listening. And if you want to hear some of our older episodes, including some great interviews with industry legends like Mark Bagley, Jam Demateus, Ron Friends, the legendary Tom DeFalco. Check out our newest podcast feed, Amazing Spider Talk Back Issues. And when you're there, leave us a review because that gets the algorithm thing going and then people can find us and then they'll find this show and it's just going to be great and we'll get reviews and we'll be the most popular podcast in the world and we'll sell out and you'll have ads every 30 seconds on the show. Alan, what's not to love about that promise, right? All my clothes through Stitch Fit. What's Today on the show, Mark and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man, Volume 6, Number 8. This issue was written by Zeb Wells with interior and cover pencils by John Romita Jr., inks by Scott Hanna, colors by Marcio Menez, and letters by VCs Joe Caramanga. This issue was first released on August 24th, 2022. Hey, Mark, do you want to tell us what happened in this issue? And, and do I? in a way that is clear and coherent and does, does not have a glaring, glaring uh, pronoun antecedent error like the official recap page in this issue does. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I will try and do better, but I cannot guarantee anything like that because I write these things up quickly and kind of under the influence, maybe the way Nick Lowe does uh, editing a book. I'm kidding. I'm kidding the editor of the Spider Books. 
So here's our synopsis. Spider-Man is falling after the Vulture broke his web shooters and dropped them. But in defiance to our snarky prediction last episode, there is nobody on a goblin glider ready to save him. So instead, Spidey needs to figure something out or die. He grabs a spare cartridge of web fluid and breaks it open to break his fall. So, haha, <laughs> Nick Lowe, there is no funeral this week. Yet. Vulture is not ready to back down after Spider-Man screwed over relations at the next tomb's Thanksgiving last time around. So Spidey calls up Norman Osborn asking for an assist, and Norman says no. Spidey thinks it's all a setup, but has no time to ponder it as he has to take care of the Vulture still. He's able to overcome the Vulture with brute strength and force of will long enough to subdue him temporarily. Vulture is ready for his next attack when Spider-Man shows up on a goblin glider. And just like that, we have a cover image that's super accurate. Take that, all of you ASM number two hysterical people. With a flying object and some spider goblin bombs at his disposal, Spider-Man is able to easily overwhelm Tombs. With Tombs webbed up and still bitter, Spider-Man is able to get himself back over to Oscorp to confront Norman. Peter is all... Is this you trying to murder me for the 500th time? And Norman's all like, No, it's different this time because the Sin Eater took away my sins, even though I don't even know what that means. You have to ask Nick Spencer, but he was too busy spending three years to make sure I never actually banged Gwen Stacy. I said it, folks. Peter believes Norman and then accepts his job, and it's the biggest handshake in nerd history since Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage formed the Mega Powers, and yes, I know I'm dating myself with that one. Just deal with it, folks. It's a Mark synopsis. How was it, Alan? Any chuckles this time, or am I am I going too big now? Am I am I like? Is it kind of like Joe Piscovo on SNL? He's just becoming like too much of a thing now. Mark, the Gen X energy in this podcast is just we we really need to get Dan back. Listeners, I suspect that it is we are closer to the end of my filling in than we are to the beginning, but we do not have an exact date for for Dan's return to this chair. We kicked off with my Simpsons reference. Went into your wrestling reference (laughs) like yeah so i I apologize and i also apologize for the simpsons reference because i mean that is a limiting thing like as i have actually in my life like tried to limit the number of times i make a reference to the simpsons because i noticed that men my age do that just like relentlessly and if you haven't like can't chapter and verse the first eight years of that series that only ran for eight years then you don't understand what they're talking about i'm talking like like i follow like reporters from the washington post who like frame every single major news story with a simpsons gif and it's like guys come on like it's not the center of our culture anymore so i apologize for my fireworks factory opening even as i intended it to express my excitement for this issue where you know i feel like for for years now, uh, maybe since Superior, it's felt like Amazing Spider-Man is always like on its way. It's like really getting close to finally getting to some good stuff. Like we're just about to the good stuff. We're almost there. And then we never get there. And I feel like we're there. On that note, let's actually talk about this issue a little bit, not just my snarky synopsis. I kind of wanted to start us off with the very, very beginning of this issue is a natural point to start, which is, you know, Spider-Man not being saved by Norman as we kind of surmised he would be at the end of the last issue and, and kind of throwing some kudos towards the creative team here for for surprising us. I mean, hey, comics aren't always predictable, right? I mean, like, I, I thought this was a good a good little twist here. 
They're with you. I mean, second set of web shooters is not the most exciting solution in the world, but it's better than most. <laughs> you know, it's better than most cliffhanger resolutions in Amazing Spider-Man history. This is Peter being prepared. This is an experienced Spider-Man who actually uses that belt of his. Maybe we'll get the spider signal in the future. This is an example, I think, Mark, of, of trust being rewarded. When we were talking about earlier issues of this run on this show, I said to you something about Wells knows how Spider-Man stories tend to go, and he seems committed to upending expectations within the stories themselves, like things don't work out the way they're going to. It's not all about who is the surprising cameo we can put in or which wild change to the status quo, you know, can 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 I can I come up with? It just seems much more about like how could this story unfold in a way that is surprising and engaging and still honors all of the elements of Spider-Man, yet doesn't go where you expect? I'll be honest, Mark, you own every single issue of Amazing Spider-Man. And honestly, I've read most of them. I, I've not finished the Clone Saga, and I never will because life <laughs> is too short. But honestly, Mark, in most of those issues, a cliffhanger like this would play out just as we all expected it would. And I think you even made a joke about in our last episode, you know, where, oh, great, here's the new suit, here's the new glider. Like, I didn't know if Norman was going to bring it out, if it was just going to arrive on its own, if it was going to be postmated, but it sure felt like that was going to show up and save him. Here, it doesn't. This book is not on autopilot. No, it's not. But the key the key to this working and not being a surprise for the sake of, of a surprise is, is the second half of what you were saying there, which is that it, it's it's different, but it still honors, I think, the, the core of the character. In this case, okay, look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit there with a physics degree and, and break down like the mechanics and the science of how Spider-Man ultimately uses his web fluid to kind of form like a like a cushioning thing with the trees. However, it's it kind of goes back to an old trope, going back to those Dicko Lee issues of like Peter being like, okay, I'm in a pickle here. What can I use at my disposal, you know, from my environment, from my toolkit here to save myself? You know, whether it's fighting Electro and getting rubber gloves or, or, or you know, how he kind of ties Doc Ock's arms together for a split second so he can get a punch in. Like, it's it's always Spider-Man kind of improvising and, and winning and saving the day or saving himself in a not so graceful way. That was the other thing I really loved about this was like he kind of like, you know, crash lands into Central Park, but in a, in a way where he doesn't die. And you're like, yeah, I mean, it's it, that kind of brings me back to, you know, one of one of the issues that is most controversial in my love of Spider-Man, which is that infamous Marvel two in one annual against Thanos when he just basically throws himself at the containment facility where the Avengers are being imprisoned to open it up. But it's like, yeah, like that's that's Spider-Man man in a nutshell like he's he's not always graceful he's not always like you know he, he's not going to get a 10 for style points but he gets the job done because he's smart he thinks quick he can improvise with the best of them so this just kind of felt true to all that while still being a twist i didn't see coming and and not being you know and being being unpredictable in a way that made sense instead of being unpredictable for the sake of being unpredictable does that make sense to you yes absolutely i mean wells as spider-man is uh, a more grounded Spider-Man than we sometimes get. 
Yeah, I mean, I felt like it was right in the tradition of those, you know, Ditko moments you're talking about. I I know, I'm sorry, Mark, that that issue of Marvel Team Up did not make the Amazing Spider Talk essentials. I, I know that you have not conceded that election yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's my, it's my Georgia. Some... <laughs> it is my Georgia, Alan. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, the logistics of this, I mean, I don't care if it makes physical sense. A whole cartridge of web fluid in the trees of Central Park, that's just awesome. That is good enough for me. That is so much fun. And the sequence is like kind of breathtakingly well done. I mean, we've said this before. I'll probably say it again, unless you guys bring Dan back and he'll say something else. <laughs> but you look at a Ramita panel or you look at a Ramita sequence and you know what's happening, who's where, what it means, and why it matters. Each panel has clarity and impact, and the layouts on the page guide the eye, and they capture the momentum of the characters in a way that is so clear and powerful that when you see it, or when I see it personally, I'm, I like wonder, why aren't all comics like this? Why so often when I look at comics and I'm not, am I not quite sure what I'm looking at? I love in this sequence here the blend of classical comic layouts that Romita brings to it, like in the first two pages with eight panels each, just like Ditko, and then the cinematic storytelling from varied perspectives within those layouts. The the eight-panel page grid went out decades ago. I've seen comic writers say that they don't even put them in, they, they would never put them in the scripts because the, the pencilers would be so annoyed at it. You know, it went out decades ago in favor of what I think of as a like Ultimates style widescreen where everything's trying to look like a movie. But here, that classic comic book page, like it really captures this momentum. And there's something about that grid, that, that old fashioned grid that suggests a predictability. It suggests we're building to a punchline on the page. And, and that punchline has to be a splatter. So it adds to the tension, like this this old-fashioned layout in this really great way. And then Wells and Ramita make, throughout this whole sequence, they make terrific use of page-ending cliffhangers. And then page-turn surprises. I actually said, whoa, like out loud when I turned the page. Like it looked like Spidey, Spidey's caught a breather. He's hanging there. We finally get that half-page panel uh, that kind of lets you catch your breath. But no, you can't catch your breath because as soon as you turn the page, Vulture clocks right into him. Such great stuff. It's an element that's just missing from so much sequential art storytelling these days. I mean, it's that, that, like, what keeps you turning the page? And, you know, it seems like at least through these first, I mean, I know this is issue eight, but it's seven issues that Wells and Ramita have done together so far like they they've really captured the secret sauce it's 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 funny because when Ramita was was being asked about it at the Terrificon panel that I attended a few weeks ago you know he kind of like joked a little bit about like Wells was kind of like this like mad scientist of like just like throwing all this stuff out there and and making Ramita kind of figure it out like it was very I think he said it was very challenging or something to that tune but like I don't know the way the way these read. It seems like it's it's kind of the best of both worlds, where it feels like Wells is is probably providing a lot of detail. It would seem, but also JRJR is is able to use his experience and his chops to kind of get some latitude visually to to kind of build to the next the next big boom, if you will. Um, so I, I I mean this is this is just really great storytelling I, I i will throw my one little nerdy nitpick to merit which was you know to what you were saying with the with the action was progressing 
when Peter initially kind of disappears from the vulture and then comes back with the glider, I definitely had a moment of like, wait a second, how did he pull that off? But I guess so much else was working here that I'm just going to go with it and not really question it. But, you know, if, if you have any theories or if I missed something here, feel free to tell me I'm being an idiot here. I, I believe if I were Dan Gavazdin, I would I would uh, say something like, well, I'm not sure that moment was earned. Er, der, der, der. Like when... You know, I think of like uh, when you're rolling with the comic, you're rolling with it and you don't need every beat explained. But let's talk a little bit more about that vulture fight, too, because like you said, there was there was just some great stuff here. And I feel like I'm saying this again with every issue, certainly during a lot of the tombstone issues. And then even last time around, we talked a little bit about this, but it, it just it's just bears repeating because I do not remember the last time we got a book that had such raw violence in it or I should say a Spider-Man book that has such raw violence in it and it's not like I don't feel like it's overindulgent or overzealous and and like you know we're not like we're not entering Frank Miller territory here we're not like you know this is not like you know I'm the goddamn Batman or anything like that this is certainly got a, a street level rawness to it that we have not seen in a Spider-Man book in recent memory for for sure and yet it really works like I, I mean like th- this a fight between Spider-Man and the Vulture should look like this, in my opinion. You know what I mean? Like this is this is you got an old man of flight and a, a younger character who is more acrobatic and can maneuver and has more brute strength. And I feel like this is how two characters of those attributes and abilities would try and kill each other <laughs> or, or kick the crap out of each other. And and it, it's just rendered so perfectly by Ramita. And and I feel like. You know, the way Wells is setting up the plots here makes it work so that Ramita can kind of, you know, bring it home. If you what what are your thoughts about how this is how these fights and violence and whatnot is being being captured here in these books? One that jolted me was Spider-Man piloting tombs into a chimney. <laughs> like, I mean, Tombs' face has got to be like Jack. I mean, Tombs doesn't have any kind of healing ability he's an old man <laughs> uh like that one struck me as like really peter are you are you going this far are we supposed to feel some disquiet about this the same way i i mean i do suspect we're supposed to feel some disquiet a couple times during this fight such as you know when we get the the horrific moment of the nanobots or the spider bots or whatever they are swarming over tombs's eyes i mean that is a horrifying image and it, it, of course, it suggests Superior and Doc Ock in a lot of ways too, and it is one of many moments in this fight. I think of, I think there's at least two that are intentional, and then one that I just mentioned. You know, Tombs clocking into the chimney that might not be intentional. It's one of many moments in this fight where I feel like we are being asked to wonder if Peter's really fully in control of what he's doing here and uh, what he's getting into by partnering with Osborne. And those other two moments are when when uh, when the the nanobots flood Tombs's eyes. And then that great, great moment. I mean, I thought this was just fantastically well done, where the glider targets Peter for a second. We see from its perspective it targeting Peter, and we don't know what it's going to do, and we maybe wonder if it's going to take a shot at him or not. And then, of course, it just approaches and is benign. But I, I really loved that. I mentioned the word, I used the word ambivalence a couple times talking about the last issue. And I feel like a lot of this a lot of this story is being presented with more ambivalence than we are used to in a Spider-Man comic. 
Peter running tombs into that chimney, that looked like something the black costume would do while Peter was sleepwalking. I believe last week or the week before, whenever we talked about the last issue, I mentioned my theory that all new writers on Amazing Spider-Man read the first hundred issues of Spider-Man and then maybe like three or four others. Right. (laughs) I actually think they read a couple trades of, of like big stories from like the last 20 years. And of course... The biggest one they all read is Coming Home, the the first JMS, JRJR issues that introduced Moreland, who used to be a vampire who took a lot of time to show up anywhere. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole other set of issues. I mean, that's another fireworks factory going for you. but <laughs> Oh, that is a pure fireworks factory run. Uh, or, or, or arc. The brutality here, the relentlessness here very much echoes coming home. And it's not just because we have Romita Jr. drawing a swollen, beaten Spider-Man in a costume that is falling apart. I think Spider-Man gets his costumes the same place Hulk Hogan gets his shirts, if we're going to go back reference-wise. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, and Wells is writing to Romita's like, great skill at capturing that kind of brutality and relentlessness. But I'd also argue that I'm, I'm wandering outside of the fight. We'll get back to the fight. I, I think there's a lot of JMS throughout this run so far. Uh, I think Wells is taking a lot of inspiration from coming home and those first JMS issues, but it's less wordy, it's less self-helpy, it's less big idea cosmic, you know, with all that spider totem stuff. The Peter in coming home is too glum and too caught up in his own head to hear his aunt talking at breakfast in like the first issue or two of that arc in a way that very, very much feels like the Peter of this arc. One of the, I think, tragic differences, though, is that at that point in history, Spider-Man history, it felt like, well, perhaps this relationship with Spider-Man and Aunt May might go somewhere new, and it did at the end of that arc. Well, somewhere we've been before, but it still was newish, and I'm worried that we're not going to be able to get that now. But anyway, back to this fight. JRJR, as I'm saying, every issue. I don't know. I think we're supposed to wonder about the violence. I think this is, I think these things we're discussing are intentional and not accidental. Now, Alan, not to, not to make you go on some more, but, you know, and I'm revealing the sausage making process here, but these are some notes that you added here. But I want, I, I, you, you mentioned a good point here about the, the lack of words during sequences like this. And and I think that's a great point because, you know, like on one hand, I feel like Wells is doing a really good job in a way that I don't feel like Spencer did all that often in terms of giving us some insight into our main character, Peter, in terms of his state of mind. I mean, we don't we don't have all the cards, which we'll get to again later on a bit in terms of the what did Peter do and how that's impacting all these all these relationships right now. But I do feel like for the first time in a really long time, we're inside Peter's head a bit more than we used to. With all that said, sequences like these are really being driven by the visuals and less by the verbiage on the page. And I wonder what your thoughts on that are. I mean, it's just, it's just to the help or the hindrance of the storytelling right now. Both. I think it's both. I mean, as I've, I keep mentioning Coming Home, that's because I reread Coming Home for the first time in several years this week. And I was really struck at how wordy, you know, a comic just from 20 years before before it was. Although I think JMSs were more wordy than most people's at the time. Wells is writing fewer words than we've gotten in a Spider-Man comic, than than we would have gotten in a Spider-Man comic even a few years ago. And personally, I would not mind a few more. I think it's a balance that maybe isn't always being struck exactly right here. 
Uh, and partially because of what you mentioned last week, which is we can't have too much of what's going on in Peter's head because to reveal that would reveal the big secret, whatever that is. Uh, but I mean, I definitely do not miss those issue-long monologues that would be in text boxes disconnected from any character that we got during the Spencer run. Those issues where where Spider-Man's just going on and on about something while we're watching kind of unrelated action. And, and those issues where the image might barely have something to do with the words we're reading. And it's kind of like, wait, is Peter's real superpower uh, that he gets paid by the word? Uh, I don't miss that kind of disconnected essay contest comic book writing at all. I don't miss that at all. But I would welcome Peter thinking more often, just a little bit more often, using Peter's inner monologue to address what we might read as plot holes or, hey, wait a minute, I don't think that's how it would go, like that kind of stuff. And in this issue, I think there is one where... You know, when Peter is like desperately calling Harry Osborne for help, part of me is asking, why doesn't Peter just like jump into a window and hide? You know, and all we need to all we need to eliminate that is Peter thinking one of his Peter things. I could go through the skylight and hide, but tombs would follow and target civilians. I don't want to say it's related, but but, but something that did kind of bother me in retrospect following this issue and and. Everything we just said is is very true in terms of I, I loved how this whole sequence with Tombs is rendered and, and kind of the drama and the brutality of it. But with all that said, you know, the 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 actual incident that kind of, you know, ignited this 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 fire in 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 the vulture to me, I feel is a little poorly developed or underdeveloped. It's a little underbaked. We got this sequence, obviously, in the last issue with with Tombs and his niece and the niece being like, you know, someone told me, you know, he told me you were a killer and Tombs knows it's Spider-Man. But like, I still feel like we need more. I, I like like to, to justify Tombs going so off the handle and then like towards, you know, at the end when when Spider-Man does defeat him and kind of makes the crack like, well, you know, you're just going to have to deal with the fact that you 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 beat me pretty badly, but didn't kill me. And Tombs, like, you know, it's like his world is broken that he he lost this fight. Like, yes, I guess we will. I guess I will just have to. Like, you could just see, like, the, the dejection on his face. And I'm like, to have that level of emotional heat, I, I, needed, I need a little more story and characterization between Tombs and this niece. And I feel like we're getting, it's, it's definite telling, not showing territory. You know, I know we had a little bit of background from 50 issues ago or whatever it was, but like this would have really been hit out of the park if we maybe got a little more context and, and development here. And instead, we're just kind of being told to, well, no, 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 she means a lot to him, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, this is not the Vulture comic. And maybe if we did spend that kind of time with him, it would create the other problem, which is not enough focus on Spider-Man. But I don't know, like it, it, it was just like the one thing when I was thinking more and more about it and kind of prepping for the show is like. We need more of this if we really want to like bring these moments to like 100% clarity here. And I, I don't feel like Wells or Ramita really brought that forth in these last two issues. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Or am I just kind of rambling in that Gavazdan way that I do? There was nothing Gavazdan-y about that at all. Come on. <laughs> come, come on. Come on. Come on. What are you talking about? You, you, you sound like a sports writer, not like a Gavazdan. Uh, <laughs> I, I just feel like this is something I feel a lot reading contemporary Marvel. 
which is that I miss the page or two we've lost over the years. You know, I, I wouldn't want any of the pages that we have in this issue or the previous issue to have been devoted to that relationship. You know, I wouldn't want to lose any of the other any of the pages that were about other stuff to that relationship. But yeah, another page or two over these two issues would have helped sell this story. And given given the given the vulture more emotional impact there at the end. Yeah, this vulture story it's affecting, I think. It, it it's kind of touching, but it's it's not the rhino story we got during Brand New Day. Well, you know where we can talk about some of our our favorite stories and extra pages and anything else that might be tickling your brain in the world of comics. It's our Slack. Alan, why don't you tell us a little bit about our amazing Spider Talk Slack community? Hundreds of listeners like you hang in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can web-sling your way into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, Drunk Pete, and more. Yeah, Alan, I know that, you know, I've kind of joked about the fact that I don't go to the Slack. Well, guess what? I was in the Slack this past week. That's right. When I was I was on vacation last week in Massachusetts and I was in a, a record shop and I saw a mint condition version of the Spider-Man rock comic record with its poster. It still had it wasn't sealed closed, but it was, you know, had the, the, the wrapping still on it. Never been played collector's dream. And, you know, they had it on display on the wall of the important stuff, but it wasn't like as priced as high as it could have been. I think if I was at a comic convention, it would have been probably twice as much as what I ended up paying for it. Spider-Man Spider -Man nerds aren't the target audience of a record shop like this. So I bought it and I posted photos of it on the Slack and talked a little bit about my find. And the first reaction I got was, holy crap, it's Mark. But beyond that, then we started talking about the rock comic and had and had a great conversation because even though Dan and I had done an episode about the rock comic uh, a few seasons ago, there were some people in the Slack that had not uh, heard about it and did not know that that Marvel produced a you know like they they commissioned a band to play music uh, to a Spider-Man plot. I mean, it it was it's just utterly weird. So anyway, I was in the Slack. There are hundreds of other people like you said in this community so if you want to join in and get a rare appearance from me follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi and once you're there be sure to let us know what you think of this new episode and someone in the slacks promised me they were going to send me beer if i showed up in the slack more often i mean you know shipping beer is a crime but you know if we could find a way to make that happen legally I'll go to the Slack every day, guys. Just takes a Trans Am and a big rig, man. <laughs> Alan, back to the issue at hand, which is uh, Amazing Spider-Man number eight. Again, I feel I feel like we are repeating certain beats from last time around. But, you know, when you kind of get decompressed storytelling like this, that's what you got to do. And so we got to talk a little bit more about Norman and Peter Parker. They're BFFs for life, it seems. Um, we knew it was kind of going to go there last issue, but it doesn't make it any less weird. And kind of repeating a refrain that you had mentioned in our last segment, oh man, not knowing the full context of what's going on is is, is really hurting this story in a way. And I, and I don't want to make it sound like in, in, a, in a dire way, but like 
as good as this is, it could be that much better if we are 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 in Peter's head here. Because like, you know, when when Peter has that first phone call and like Norman kind of stone colds him, no, I'm not going to help you. And, 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 you know, you could just tell like, you know, in that final sequence, Peter is like, you know, he's he's waffling on this trust and Norman kind of gives this this monologue to it. To me, all I'm thinking is like, oh, man, we are like skipping major beats in the narrative here because we're not getting all the cards on the table. We're not in Peter's head because we we're not allowed to know what it is that has transpired between these two characters to change the dynamic here. So is this truly betrayal that Peter is feeling? Is it just natural distrust? Is it any trust at all? Because it's Norman frickin' Osborne and we still don't know anything. You know what I mean? So like, I, I, I just wish that there was some way to just get to the fireworks factory, doing it again, and get to what Peter did so that we could actually really explore this dynamic here in a profound way. Because I think, like, I'm going to say it, like, if 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 the cause is truly compelling that's bringing these two characters together, I think this is a really interesting dynamic that these two characters can put aside this history and, and have this this interesting relationship right now. We we don't know. So for all I know, it could be something very silly and, and, and frivolous. And then it just kind of feels like a waste. I don't know. I guess with this issue, I did not feel Peter did something like hanging over this story that much. Uh, Peter always did something. He's always, you know, he's always in a desperate state. He's always broke. The supporting cast is always let down by him. It's the given of the character, unless you believe the given of the character is that he is happily married. I keep mentioning coming home and the depressed state he's in. And this run reminds me of that one quite a bit, except here we're not hearing his voice. And here he doesn't find purpose in something the way he finds purpose in being a teacher in that run and such such an exciting, you know, uh, series of events that, that leads him to do that. So it's not clear to me what he's doing, why he's doing it, if he has some kind of secret ulterior motive. I, I wish we were getting a little bit more of that. I'm entirely with you there. But Mark, generally speaking, I think even if I haven't felt like it's always clicking necessarily in those Peter Norman scenes before this issue. I thought the events of this issue and Peter and Norman's like behavior to each other and towards each other and the things they say to each other actually sold me on buying this beat, especially on buying this new status quo, especially if we as readers assume that Peter does have something in mind, you know, that Peter is keeping an eye on this guy. We're not getting obvious clues or or thought captions to tell us not to trust Norman. We're getting plenty of hints that Norman's got ulterior motives and that we can't really know what they are. And as I mentioned earlier, there's plenty of places within the story where the storytelling itself expects us to be uneasy and, you know, is is intentionally ambivalent. I, I'm, I'm amazed, you know, at some people online who seem to be taking this uh, development in Peter's life as like a total betrayal of Gwen. It just seems that that is written into the books themselves, even if the books are not articulating that in who's in Joe Caramanga's lettering. Okay, it's in there. It's in there. You can tell from the letters page that uh, that Nick Lowe knows this is a wild development. The weird thing is we're not getting Peter's brain telling us that too. But I don't know. I bought the beats here. I bought the beats here, especially when Norman seems to 
confess to Peter his real reason for for why he's doing all this. I can't get on that glider. I don't want to be who I am. By the way, two more shout outs in this issue to uh, the Sin Eater story making no sense. By the way, I appreciate that. <laughs> that 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 twist, that that turnabout that that uh, Norman pulls on Peter in this issue, like I couldn't do it. I can't get on the glider. I don't want to become that man again. All that. That is exactly the kind of thing that the Peter Parker Parker, we've been reading about for 900 issues, plus God knows how many Peter Parker issues and web issues and, I don't know, Todd McFarlane adjective-less, boring, violent Spider-Man issues. That's, that's, this guy is going to feel bad and is going to be like, oh, okay, you murdered my girlfriend, but okay, yeah. I'll trust you just a little bit. I'll see where this is going. It's, it's ludicrous, and yet it's just classic Peter Parker. I am fine with it. I am enjoying it. I want to see where this is going. And I also suspect both of these characters have an ulterior motive. The difference here is that Zeb Wells' style is not to then end the the issue with Norman's eyes kind of closing a little tightly and him looking like rage. And it says, he will never know what, or wait until he finds out what I'm really up to. Right, you know, right. we're not getting that. He's but, not flickering on, green. <laughs> yeah, it's Norman Osborn. We know this isn't going to end well. <laughs> right. I, I, I will say, and, and I definitely want to give a shout out to, you know, Norman, you know, basically them saying the quiet part out loud, which is like, what what does it even mean that I lost my sins or, or I was cleansed of my sins? I mean, like, you know, we're not even talking subtext. It's text text. But I, I have a, I have a little bit of a hot take here, Alan, or, or maybe it's not a hot take. OK, we Spencer during his run came up with this kind of crazy status quo of, you know, Norman was cleansed of his sins. And, and you know, yes, he did that to kind of bring the story to other directions. But like, I kind of like that they're maintaining the status quo here like 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 if if they're gonna tell new stories and different kinds of stories with peter and norman based off of that dynamic and and kind of create this very uneasy but not like like you said like you know it's not gonna end well in the way that like when Peter took over Parker Industries, you know that he was never going to be able to be a successful multi-billionaire businessman forever. You know that these two are not going to be friends forever. But like, I am buying this just long enough that they might be friends for, say, 15, 20 issues. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I'm kind of buying it that much. And, and if that is going to be the case and they can tell some good stories with this, I think this is one of the, the, the few things from that last half of the Spencer run that I think was kind of worth honoring and salvaging, whereas other things I hope they never bring up again. <laughs> I'm right there with you. And I, yeah. I don't think the, uh, the three references we've had now to whatever that means, I don't think those are necessarily shots at Spencer the way Spencer took a shot at Slot and the way, you know, I've complained about, you know, it is a weird, confusing status quo. It is a weird, confusing status quo. And I just urge Spider-Man fans who don't feel comfortable with where this is going or don't believe the characters would do this, or I, I just urge them to accept and embrace ambiguity. Okay? We this is everybody involved knows this is weird. Like the characters know it's weird, the creators know it's weird, you, the reader, know it's weird. You are not being asked to believe something that would never happen. You are being asked to go along with this story and see where it's going. And I personally feel that the storytellers have earned my trust. I don't know if you feel that way. If you don't, that's great. But 
we're not idiots for liking it. I, I agree. You got it. You got to just kind of put your trust in the creators, as you said earlier on in this review. And now, now with that, with that all said, I, I, I kind of want to end this review with a little bit of a, I don't know if it's a critique or just a comment. I feel like, you know, we're, we're enough issues in to, to kind of comment on the kind of storytelling and, and the pacing at which it's unfurling to kind of start drawing some conclusions here about what kind of run we're going to get here. And to me, it's worth noting just how decompressed this storytelling is. Like, like this is for me, and maybe I'm dating myself a little bit, like this is the most decompressed storytelling we've gotten in a Spider-Man comic, probably since like that initial run of Ultimate Spider-Man that that Brian Michael Bendis and, and Mark Bagley did back in the early 2000s. Like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking back over to the fact that we've got, you know, we're, we're eight issues in and, you know, specifically like these last two issues. And we've really captured what probably amounts to about 15 minutes of real time in Spider-Man's life. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not saying like we need to have the comic move in real time and have it move once every two weeks. But like this is really inching slowly. Um, and I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's 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 just a thing worth noting, especially coming off of. You know, we, we do have some quote unquote mysteries to resolve. And I know it might even have been you who said something or maybe someone on the Internet who commented on the fact that like, oh, no, 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 we were told like we're going to we're going to know what Peter did in X number of issues. And that might be true. But we also thought that we were going to know who Kindred was by issue 25 and then by issue 50 and then something else happened and it was a false reveal and blah, 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 blah. And I guess what I'm trying to say is. Decompressed storytelling is fine, especially if you're telling good stories. But like if you're also trying to reveal something and unfurl something and you're letting this decompressing kind of start creating drag on it because like, oh, no, 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 we can we can we can milk this for six more issues to, you know, because these stories are good and people are liking it. So we can take the bigger plot point and push that off and, and, and kick that can down the road, kick that can down the road. You're going to create distrust in, in 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 your readership again. So. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, on the pacing here overall. I mean, it also could be the page count, like you said. Like, like I feel like, I, you know, I'm like these comics are as good as they are. They're missing like, like some heft to them, some content. It's just something I need to get out there, <laughs> get it off my chest, Alan. All that makes sense to me. I'll just say that uh, rarely has a two-issue vulture story had as much impact as I think these last two issues did. For me, the test for this run what I'm looking forward to seeing is coming up. Then like we are moving into, I don't read the solicits. That's why this show really needs a Dan Gavazdan because I don't read the solicits. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I know that we're going to get a crossover next issue and then we're going to get, isn't there an event tie in coming up after that? You know, all those, all those landmines Marvel puts into every run of every character and the the test is going to be whether these percolating storylines, these tensions that Wells and Romita are exploring, you know, whether they manage to continue to flavor the comics that we get where they're having to do all this other stuff. And, you know, I, I, I've recently been reading uh, 
catching up on slots, uh, Fantastic Four over on Marvel Unlimited, the the worst designed uh, user app I can imagine. And <laughs> I don't know. There's uh, HBO Max too, Alan. So oh dear lord, <laughs> oh dear lord. Well, at least comics don't vanish from HBO Max like animated television series. Uh, uh, Vanish from Asia. Anyway, one thing that's really struck me in Slot's Fantastic Four run, besides how much I love it, you know, his kind of big picture, let's tweak the origin, let's have a wedding, let's, let's you know, upend everybody's status quo. That kind of storytelling really, really fits the FF. And his, uh, his horny Johnny Storm, his horny idiot Johnny Storm, I like much better than his horny idiot Peter Parker. Uh, <laughs> but, but one thing that really impressed me in this run is how adeptly, how deftly slot uh works in the crossovers like the king and black crossover to to continue telling his story while doing all those things you have to do while writing a marvel flagship book and what i'm really hopeful for is that wells in the next couple issues where he's doing all this extra extracurricular stuff that isn't what you want out of this story right now that he continues to develop these storylines and again and sustain a mood and show us a Peter Parker who all of these events that are happening to him inform who he is and how he feels and how he approaches problems at individual, mo- you know, individual moments of the run. I'm hoping he can pull that off. I know writing a run of Amazing Spider-Man these days means writing loads of issues, maybe out of order, maybe writing a giant anniversary issue before you write the three issues leading up to the anniversary issue. I, I'm hoping that it stays coherent it stays uh and it, it stays just driven by this depressed peter parker trying to find his way out of it you want to get into some grades alan mark i'm gonna i'm gonna do it i'm gonna say this issue a minus man i loved this issue you 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 might have upsold me here i'm gonna say a minus too i mean like i gotta keep the trend of always agreeing with my co-hosts uh you know like it, it's just you know it doesn't matter if it's someone who doesn't read the solicits or someone who you know texts me at you know 11 30 at night i mean he is on west coast time so he doesn't always know to, to tell me did you see the blah 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 on some certain website and i'm like what <laughs> Mark gets up for a bathroom break at two in the morning. It's like, what am I getting texted about? Anyway, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> Anywho, yeah, A minus. This was, I think, I think the tombstone. One of the tombstone issues we gave an A minus too, as well. Like this is this is good stuff. This was a great. This is probably the best vulture story since Roger Stern. So you know what's 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 not to love about that. But let me let me tell you all about the Patreon, uh, so we can kind of get to the the closing moments of the show here. If you find this show entertaining and valuable, please consider supporting us. Recommend Amazing Spider Talk to a friend. And if you're able, become a member of our Patreon. Anne and Mark and sometimes me can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members. And we owe the show success to every single one of you. And we are constantly making, well, Dan and Mark. Dan and Mark are constantly making exclusive content for our members. So why not take $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic most days, and put it towards a month's subscription to support the show and start, recei- and start receiving our Patreon content. 
That way you'll hear our Patreon exclusive review podcast on every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week it comes out instead of waiting for it to arrive in our public podcast feed. And if you contribute $10 a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. We've recently commissioned Juan Ferreira to depict the black suit Spider-Man and Daredevil to help memorialize our transition into the Peter David era of Spectacular Spider-Man. I'm really looking forward to the episodes on that era, by the way, Mark. That's one one of my favorites. I know it's controversial. I know it's a little too dark. Uh, I know it pissed off Tom DeFalco, but I love those issues. Plus, every episode, every episode, we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cignetti for our patrons to enjoy. But we know this is a hard time for everybody, as it is for us too. Despite me bragging about buying a mint condition record comic, uh, rock comic, the other day, so we appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening and sharing. But if you have the means, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. Just follow the link in the description. And thank you to all the members who already make this show possible. Alan, why don't you bring us to the bridge? It's that time, Mark. Time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. This episode was edited by Rick Coase with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friend, Sal Buscema, and Ray Sumzer. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider-Maj. Our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton from the Panels to Pixels YouTube channel. So, Alan, until I contemplate whatever it means to have my sins cleansed, what's our motto? Great podcast, there must also come the amazing Spider-Talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.